playing the clarinet just made me sad because of what I lost. It was kind of like during the pandemic, so many people were doing these creative things and they loved, you know, I was not one of those people that did not give me joy. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 164 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. If you've been following along in my life the past few months, you'll know that I've had a pretty busy time. We had a second child, and I sort of just decided at one point that I, I needed a bit of a break. Now, um, the one thing that I feel bad about with the break, though, is of course we've got lots of Patreon sponsors and supporters of the show who do want the show to continue, obviously, more often. So I was having an idea a while ago to uh, last year. Um, you might remember the interviews that were co-hosted or guest-hosted, I guess you could say, by Richard Hawkins. Um, now, at first I was a bit tentative about this, idea. I wasn't sure quite how it would be received, but you know what? Everybody loved it. So I was talking with someone who you'll recognize from episode 37, Joel Jaffe, and he expressed some interest in potentially taking the reins for a little bit on the podcast and talking to some Bakun artists and other uh, sort of topics which are a little bit maybe of interest to him and um, and uh, as far as like kind of going off the beaten path a little bit so you'll see kind of what I mean today as far as the episode content today it's a little bit different than usual but I'm so glad that we get to air this conversation here today because um, it really is an important conversation and I think you're really going to get a lot from it and I do hope that you enjoy today's fantastic guest who is Diane Barger so um, we will go over or sorry Joel will go over the introduction to her in a little bit more detail, but I do want to thank Joel for coming on and stepping in to guest host the Clarinet Podcast for a little while so I can get a bit of a break for probably the first time, honestly, in five, six years to just focus on my family and focus on some of my own personal projects um, and uh, really try to sort of get my head together <laughs> to continue on hosting the podcast. So don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. In fact, this week I'm setting up some great interviews with some more guests. But uh, it sure is nice to have this little bit of a breather, and I really do hope that you enjoy Joel's conversations with these guests upcoming on the program. So today we're going to start off, like I said, with Diane Barger. I will let Joel introduce his excellent and esteemed guest, who I'm sure many of you will recognize. And I really want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen, for supporting me on this endeavor, and for your patience during the times when, uh, honestly, life gets a bit busy and I've had trouble being as consistent as I would always love to be uh, producing this content. So here we go. Let's dive into the ads and then let's dive into the first of a series of episodes hosted by guest host Joel Jaffe. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. This interview is a conversation between two people and is not intended to diagnose or treat a medical condition. When in doubt, seek medical advice. 
Also a warning that the topics discussed are emotionally sensitive and could trigger some listeners. In reaching out to Diane Barger, I wanted to interview artists on topics beyond the normal realm of clarinet playing. That's exactly what I'm doing as guest host of the Clarinet Podcast. I would like to introduce today's guest, Diane Barger, as we tackle a difficult subject, cancer and the clarinetist. Diane Barger is professor of clarinet at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, principal clarinet of Lincoln Symphony Orchestra, one half of the dynamic duo, also known as the Amiketia duo, with Diane's best friend, Dr. Denise Ganey. Diane is also president-elect of the ICA, International Clarinet Association, an organization she has been involved with in numerous roles for several years. And of course, a self-proclaimed cancer ninja uh, who is loved and admired throughout the clarinet community. Diane, thank you for joining me as guest on the Clarinet Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joel. It is truly a pleasure. I've known you for a number of years. I've seen you at so many events, and uh, I've supported, of course, uh, the duo's travels with Denise and uh, and your role um, as clarinet educator and, and seeing what you and Denise have accomplished over the years with such a great friendship. And I, and I truly admire everything that you do, uh, everything that you bring to the clarinet community. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's my honor and my pleasure to have so many important roles in in the clarinet world. You know, I especially love teaching, and um, it's uh, something that brings me great joy. I want to go back in time, um, reading your bio and understanding your history, your path to where you are today. You are a two-time repeat grad of Florida State University. You have your bachelor's and your doctorate, respectively, uh, as a student of Frank Kowalski. And during that time, between those two degrees, you studied at Northwestern with Marcellus. I'm very curious, what was it about Tallahassee that made you want to go back after living in Chicago? Sure. Well, that's a great question. You know, after I, I did two degrees at Northwestern with Mr. Marcellus because it was just a one year master's degree. So I stayed a second year, you know, once I finally thought, OK, well, I kind of know how to play the clarinet now. <laughs> I want to get a little bit more out of him. So I stayed for my performer certificate because I wasn't quite ready to get a doctorate. I thought I wanted or an orchestral career. And so after I graduated with the performer certificate at Northwestern, uh, there was a, a opening, a one-year opening in the Florida Orchestra. And I'm from Tampa, St. Petersburg area. I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. My former teacher was playing principal. Um, and that's when David Ferris took the job in Minnesota. And he took a one-year's leave. So anyway, long story short, I won that uh, second and E-flat position for the one year. And when the job, um, and it was a great experience, when, when the job came open for um, a permanent position, um, I did not win the audition, and that devastated me. But, you know, it ended up being the best thing, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because after a year just doing some teaching in the area um, and some gigging, I decided, nope, you know, I, I love playing an orchestra, but for me... I really wanted to do teaching. And I knew I needed to go back for my doctorate to, to do that. Um, and the only person I wanted to study with was Frank Kowalski, because I thought, 
I'm ready to go back to him and really learn more from him this time. You know, he and I were, we were freshmen together. It was his first year when I was a freshman at Florida State. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So so we always joke that we were freshmen together. So um, so it was so nice to go back and study with him. That's absolutely amazing. I have tremendous respect for Frank and everything that he's accomplished. I mean, he's built one hell of a program and of course now retired to Seattle. When he moved up to Seattle after retiring, he actually came up to Vancouver to visit us because he's living so close and he fills in with the uh, symphony or previously did. I don't know if he's still doing that. Uh, with Ben Lulich, who's principal and and a very good friend of mine. I really admire what he built at FSU and what, of course, Debbie continues to to build on. I'm curious, when you were starting your career and and you you had that audition that, that didn't go your way, was that a hard pivot for you? Is it something you just said, you know, right now is that time, it's time to go back to school? Or, or did you have that vision of potentially doing a DMA all the way through your studies with Marcellus? I didn't necessarily have that vision while I was studying with Mr. Marcellus. I really had tunnel vision for an orchestral career. And, you know, I, I took several auditions before I won the Florida Orchestra one-year position. And um, I think I was runner-up for the Naples Philharmonic audition that Paul Vodapek won. And actually, when I ended up going back to Florida State, I was like their first sub call. So, and Frank was playing in Naples all the time. So we would like drive, you know, nine hours from Tallahassee to go to Naples, Florida, and I'd play either second or bass. So, you know, I was always involved, you know, with professional orchestras, but I really did find my love for teaching. And, and that is my, that is my place. That is my home. And when I got to, to UNL, the Lincoln Symphony job, the principal position, was filled by the principal in the Omaha Symphony, Carmelo Galante, for, for years. And, you know, all my other colleagues, most of my other woodwind colleagues were playing principal. And so it cut me to the core because I love playing orchestral music. Um, and I, you know, and, and when I took the interview, they said, by the way, we do have a professional orchestra, but the clarinet position is filled. It took eight years it was really after 9-11 that Carm decided, you know, I don't need to be doing both of these orchestras. And so he resigned from Lincoln Symphony. And then I practiced and got the job. And awesome. now I feel like I have the best of all, all the worlds. It's fascinating that you say that. When I think about academia, um, having gone through my own studies and working with a lot of artists, some that are orchestral players, some that that choose to focus on academia, and a number that ride both rails, uh, and that really have perfected the craft of being a player and a teacher. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I'm really curious, with being in academia, is that something that you find really provides a great foundation for you to go out and do all of these great artistic endeavors, whether it's traveling with a duo or participating with the ICA or um, being a guest artist or playing principal in the orchestra? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, that didn't help me get the the job in the orchestra, but it does provide you know, grant funding, um, other financial support through upper administration, you know, to be able to tour and um, get out into the schools and um, and have, you know, 
uh, a way to learn some of the skills that are needed to fulfill some of the positions in organizations like the ICA. You know, I mean, very early on, I, um, I started to have some committee positions in music, uh, MTNA, Music Teachers National Association. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. And little by little, you know, things evolved. I think the first thing with the ICA was uh, being asked to be coordinator of the high school solo competition. Um, and, and once people see your work ethic... Um, and they hear about you as a teacher and a performer, that's how you kind of get your foot in the door for uh, being involved in some of these organizations. So, so yeah, the university teaching really is a great foundation. It's a great support. It's better pay than playing in a full-time orchestra, unless you're in one of the top orchestras, of course. Um, and rock star benefits in reality. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And again, it's just it provides me with the best of everything that that I enjoy doing, teaching, performing and being involved in service. During the pandemic, which, of course, we're still in the midst of, um, I started hanging out a lot more with uh, Jose Frank Ballester, a Bakun artist and one of my very close friends. We would have weekly lunches. I'd go over to his house and we'd have paella and we'd talk. And he was very tight in my circle. And I had asked him, I said, what would have been like if you would have not been at the University of British Columbia, if you would not be been on this tenure track? Um, and he said, I don't know. He said it would have been terrifying because I would have had no safety net, uh, no medical, no dental, no support. And here I have the university. I'm still teaching, albeit on Zoom. And I think that um, that academia is a wonderful option, just like playing in the military. Um, it's nothing to be looked down upon. It's an amazing career, amazing opportunities. Um, and I think that that's so amazing for artists to have those opportunities, to have those avenues to express their um, their musicality and their passion. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that, you know, I mean, it, it's hard being in the music field, right? And, um, but I, I never doubted that I was going to find my place. I just never doubted it. And, you know, I just tell my students that, you know, you'll, you'll find the right job will find you if you're persistent and just have the faith, you know, um, now, you got to have the talent to back it up, no question. But um, you really just, you have to have the faith and the confidence in yourself, first and foremost. And quite frankly, that translates to cancer. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was literally going to be my next comment is you have that and just lined up. I mean, when I see your social media posts, the confidence, the courage that that you exude is so admirable. And it's something that... Um, that I think more people need to see and they need to understand. Let's talk about um, cancer. Let's talk about the triple threat. And you know, when I, when I say triple threat, I don't mean you know that uh, that uh, sort of forward-looking ideal that people have of you know these three beings. But you have been diagnosed with cancer three times, um, and have triumphed twice. Uh, I know you're in the third battle right now. 
Um, tell me about your first diagnosis and um, how that came about. I, I looked back through your social media posts and, and I read about it. Um, but for the listeners. Yeah, you scrolled back far, I Joel. Went, I went <laughs> deep. I went really deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so that was back in 2010, like June of 2010. And uh, this was colon cancer. And uh, turns out, I, I found out later that my mother's father had colon cancer. He did not die from that, but he did have colon cancer. And I didn't know that I had that in my family, but I was, I was experiencing some, some issues that were not right. Um, I, I don't think I'll go into detail what those were, but, but uh, and my husband just said, you better go see a doctor. So went to a doctor, explained, and they said, let's get you a colonoscopy. You know, I was 42 at the time. So I got the colonoscopy, woof, my first of many. Um, there were four polyps, um, and I think one or two of them had cancerous cells. And I just remember getting that, you know, call and falling apart, you know, it was very scary. The good news is that, you know, I had surgery um, and they basically took seven inches of my uh, colon and the doctor said, well, you had a particularly long one. So, you know, that was okay. You're not going to miss it too much. Um, and I didn't have cancer anywhere else surrounding. So it was really, it, I didn't have to have radiation. I didn't have to have anything else following the surgery other than uh, a colonoscopy every six months or every year, I think, for the first three years. Then I went on a five-year rotation and I've been fine, knock on wood, ever since, ever since with the colon cancer. So going back to your first diagnosis in June of 2010, colon cancer, how did that affect your playing or your career? I just wasn't allowed to play the clarinet for uh, six weeks. And um, interestingly enough, uh, I mean, that was, so I couldn't play at Clarinet Fest that summer. And uh, I was tempted to, to, to play like an open G on stage and say, see, I can still play. Um, <laughs> but, but my doctor says no, um, but I didn't do it. So, uh, but that September... I was actually playing Scott McAllister's X Concerto with Lincoln Symphony, so uh, so I you know I just had a, a, a few a few months maybe two months or so to to be able to get back to practicing before that concert and you know which was fine but uh, so yeah I had to be off the clarinet for a while. And how did it work with your studio? You had DMA students at the time, um, graduate students well, who could help. during the summer. Okay. Yeah, it was during the summer, so there was no teaching. Yeah, it was just my own creative activity. And same thing with, you know, when I, when I had breast cancer. It, it all happened during the summer. Well, except this time. Going to Nebraska, you have established yourself um, in your studio as quite a strong studio in terms of clarinet education. You've built a great graduate program. Um, and I'm really curious, what did you learn during your studies um, at Northwestern, at FSU, that really helped you build up this, this kind of program? And, and the reason I'm asking is I know uh, from our previous conversations that your students have, have been uh, an enormous um, support of your second diagnosis and, and third. You have laid the foundation uh, of teaching these these performers, teaching these educators um, how to teach 
And that has, has enabled you to work through these diagnoses um, and the treatments. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in terms of building the, the character of your studio, um, you know, I learned that, you know, having gone to Florida State um, during my undergrad years, it was, well, even during my doctoral degree at Florida State, even though the studio was so much bigger by that point with all that Frank did with recruiting, um, it was such a friendly um, atmosphere. Everybody was very supportive of one another. And then I went to Northwestern. <laughs> little different. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, it was, uh, I would, you know, I got lucky. I did not know this until the day before uh, what's called pool ensemble auditions, that that was the determination who was going to get into Mr. Marcellus's studio. I didn't know that. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was, and he, I think he had three openings and I was lucky enough to place high enough in that ensemble audition that I got placed in Mr. Marcellus's studio. And I just remember there were some clarinetists who, I mean, they would not give me the time of the day, you know, they'd walk right by me in the hallway and, you know, and just completely ignore me, you know, um, before the audition or after? After, wow. <laughs> after, you know, uh, and uh, and it's it was okay, you know. Northwestern at that time, so many people wanted to go there for Mr. Marcellus, you know. Let's face it, um, those those of us who thought they wanted an orchestral career, so it was very competitive, and it was just like night and day. I I did end up making some very good friends, and um, there were some lovely people in the clarinet studio. Don't get me wrong; it just took a little longer. Um, and so, you know, as I tell my students, you learn so much by all of your teachers, by observing them um, and seeing how they teach, seeing how they work with their students. And you start figuring out who you want to be as a teacher. And those experiences, those very different experiences help me know that, well, I'd like to have a competitive atmosphere but a supportive competitive competitive atmosphere because i i am a strong believer in karma kindness is the is the right way and you never know how somebody you meet might be so helpful to you someday down the line and so how you treat people makes a difference and so i try to i try to nurture that in my studio um, and, and I see that, I see it as being a family and they're very supportive of one another. And I hope they take that with them in their careers. Well, and supportive of you. When I look at, um, at the Facebook posts, when, uh, you announced your, um, second and third diagnoses, um, your students, especially, I mean, the entire clarinet community came out to support you, but your students, especially, they really look at you uh, as a parent figure um, and as a mentor. And that is something that I think a lot of people need to think about when they're teaching, when they're building their studio, when they're building um, their legacy. These students are your legacy, much like you are part of Marcellus's legacy. I mean, his is iconic. There's no doubt about it. But you have reached so many people and influenced so many people and they've all rallied to support you, which um, I, I think is absolutely fantastic. So let's go through this, the, the next diagnosis. Uh, you were then diagnosed in, I believe, 2015, is it? With breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And how, how did that come about? 
Well, you know, I've had yearly mammograms since I can't remember. I honestly don't remember the year I started, but I've always had my annual mammograms. And it was following my mammogram that they discovered, oh, we need to do a diagnostic mammogram, possibly an ultrasound, you know, please come back. So I went back, um, they did an ultrasound, um, and then ultimately I needed to get a biopsy done on a suspicious looking little dot. (laughs) And uh, I received, you know, a phone call soon after the biopsy, you know, and when the, when the doctor's office calls and they say, we need to see you rather than tell you over the phone, you know, it's not good news. And so I just remember collapsing on our stairwell, you know, and my husband came to me and I said, we got to go to the doctors. And sure enough, I had invasive ductal breast cancer. Uh, I sought out a breast cancer surgeon um, who was not in Lincoln, but who was highly recommended to me by my doctor. And I met with her literally the next week. And she looked at my radio, uh, my mammograms from 2014 and 2015. And she said, you know, now doctors are suggesting to their patients, you can get a mammogram every other year. And she says, because you got annual mammograms, you see this little dot? Had you not gotten this mammogram this year, you could have, you know, next year, this would have grown substantially. And so, you know, I am a big advocate telling women, get annual mammograms. If your doctor tells you to do it every other year, get a new doctor. I'm here to tell you that that that's what saved me was the mammogram. So how invasive was this? Um, Was it something that that was decided to be treated in terms of strict surgery? Was it um, radiation, chemotherapy? Yeah, in 2015, um, I was, uh, because it was so small, it was under a centimeter. And, you know, when it when it starts growing over a centimeter, you know, you start going in later stages. It was also an a ER positive, estrogen positive cancer. It was uh, HER2 negative, uh, PR negative. Um, so because of that, and because of the size, it was basically stage one. So I was able to get a lumpectomy. At the time, I could have had genetic testing for the BRCA genes, but my breast cancer surgeon, do you, you know, asked, do you have any history of breast cancer in your family? And I said no. And so at the time, she says, well, we we don't need to do the genetic testing. I think we can just do the lumpectomy. Um, and so that's what happened. And then I had that followed by 33 days of radiation treatment because there were there once they did the lumpectomy and of course they take out some lymph nodes in the armpit area and all the lymph nodes were clear. So I had no other cancer anywhere else other than that tumor. Um, so that's why I was able to get the radiation. Um, and again, that was 33 days. And by uh, I was finished with all of that by the time, I think my last radiology appointment was the day of our faculty retreat in August. So I had my little diploma um, of, you know, graduating from radiation. And then I, then I just had for the next five years, I was put on aromacin or exemestrain, and that was the newer breast cancer pill. Um, tamoxifen is the older drug. And uh, so my oncologist wanted me to be put on this, but because I was not, I hadn't gone through menopause uh, and this was a postmenopausal pill, 
I was also doing, I think it was every three months, um, a Lupron shot that basically shut down my ovaries um, and put me in postmenopause so I could be on this cancer pill for five years. I had that, like I said, every three months. I think I switched to a monthly shot in my last year just because it was a little bit less expensive um, to do this monthly shot than the Lupron shot. Um, I lost a little bit of bone density and they always checked that every year. Um, but uh, in 2020, uh, that September, I was you know off of all the drugs. I remember that actually when you posted it, uh, that you had made it through. And that was, uh, it was one of the most enjoyable posts I've ever had on social media. Um, you know, unfortunately lately, a lot of it is dark on social media, but when I look back, I see that was just a, a beautiful rainbow. I'm curious throughout this second bout of cancer, uh, with the surgery, with the, the radiation, with the chemotherapy, um, what was it like teaching and playing and um, maintaining all of the other activities that you are responsible for and that you take on? Well, so that that was this second round of breast cancer that happened this May. Um, because again, in 2015, I wasn't doing any kind of teaching. I had all of that done during the summer outside of you know, the pills and the Lupron shot, which that didn't deter me from doing any kind of teaching. Um, so I didn't have to do chemo the first time. Uh, but this third round of cancer, second round of breast cancer, again, this very same result of my mammogram. Um, and uh, literally a year after I stopped taking the breast cancer pills, and, and I thought I was, you know, free and clear. Um, this time it went a little slower because my breast cancer surgeon from 2015 was retiring at the end of June. So she had to refer me to um, a really terrific other surgeon. And uh, it took me like two weeks to get on her schedule, uh, yada, yada, yada. Um, I had much more testing done this second time during breast cancer because it was either a recurrence or a new cancer. They weren't quite sure. It was the same breast, different area. Again, it was under a centimeter. And so I had to do the genetic, the BRCA testing this time. And uh, that takes seven to 10 days to get back. Fortunately, I, I was negative for that. At the time, my oncologist that I had been working with in 2015, I was working with him this summer I ended up firing him and I now go to somebody in Omaha. You know, he told me from the get-go that, oh, no, a mastectomy was in order. And so, you know, for 10 days before I saw the breast cancer surgeon, I was doing all this research. And of course, that was very emotional thinking, oh my gosh, do I get just the one or do I get a complete double mastectomy? You know, it's just a roller coaster. And then I met with the breast cancer surgeon and my husband was with me and he said, is another lumpectomy out of the question? And she goes, actually not. It's not out of the question. And and because her team in Omaha, um, they had studied the radiologist, the oncologist, uh, oncologist, and she had studied my case quite thoroughly. And her oncologist partner is very much into breast cancer research. And so he doesn't just go by the national standards like my Lincoln oncologist did. 
And so they were both saying, no, because, you know, it's, again, it was estrogen positive, HER2 negative, all those, you know, other things. It was the same kind of cancer. And it was so small, stage one. They said, nope, a lumpectomy is not out of the question. And so I decided to go with that. I did have to get a full body PET scan to make sure there was no other cancer anywhere else. That turned out good. Um, and so I had the lumpectomy. And then then they had me do the mammoprint test. And what the mammoprint test is, is it takes the tumor and it puts you in a category of high risk or low risk for recurrence. Um, whereas in 2015, I had a different, I had the Oncotype test. And that also gave you a medium risk le- uh, level. And I was in the low end of the medium risk. And my breast cancer surgeon said, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do chemo. This time, the mammoprint test, uh, the tumor was, it was a grade three tumor, which is the highest grade for a tumor. And it was 93% aggressive. So chemotherapy was necessary. So because of that, <laughs> I, I, and, and how late everything was, I didn't start chemo until the end of August. And that meant I had 12 weeks of chemotherapy that was going to go all throughout the fall semester. And um, my, my boss said, we can give you full paid medical leave. And, um, and he had a sister who had gone through breast cancer. So he was very aware of the treatments and how it can really fatigue somebody. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. But I really, I would like to do my September 9th recital. I had planned on that. I was rehearsing for that. I wanted to try to play in the Moran Quintet and fulfill those duties. And I said, I'd like to teach my three doctoral students and then I'll do my best. I'll have my undergrad students send me videos like we did during the pandemic, just short little videos. And I would make comments on their videos. So I would have that experience with them. Um, And so that's how I started the semester, but I ended up um, canceling my recital and canceling quintet after one of my quintet members came down with COVID literally two days after our first rehearsal. And I thought, I'm not stepping foot back on campus because of the, the chemotherapy making me immunocompromised. I didn't want to risk getting COVID on top of everything else. So I canceled the recital and, and literally I put down my clarinet for quite a while because I was so depressed. (laughs) I want to go back to something you said about researching cancer in that span between being diagnosed and and meeting with the doctors. How do you know what to believe? Uh, And this is something that I say from my own knowledge, but for, for our listeners, how do you know that what you're reading is legit? That, that, that information that you're being armed with is not causing harm. Well, and that's the thing. This is why I let my Lincoln oncologist go because I was actually pretty upset with him when he gave me as my only option a mastectomy. And where the breast cancer surgeon and her oncologist who I met with, who was so well-versed and, you know, they, I mean, he met and gave me a 10 page document of the latest research. And, and it wasn't like the research just happened. It was, you know, the last several years, it's just that probably hasn't had enough to have the national breast cancer association, put it 
on their website saying, okay, this is another way you can treat a second either recurrence or second new cancer in the same breast. My my new oncologist here in, in Omaha, he actually does not think it was a recurrence, but he thought it was a new cancer, which was another reason why they thought it was fine for me to get a lumpectomy. Now, um, and that's the thing, you know, we, we can't breathe, breathe, uh, believe anything we read, no matter if it's in the newspaper or um, it's medical. I mean, everybody has differing opinions and it takes years upon years upon years, I think, for national organizations to put what they think is the best treatments, you know, on their websites, you know, as a protocol. And that was the thing. My Lincoln oncologist says, I will always follow the national protocol where my Omaha team said, national protocol we believe in, but we also believe in the most recent research that's been done. So I think it's really your call as the patient. One of my um, very good friends, um, she has cancer in, in her family, um, a history of cancer, and she had the genetic test done and the markers came back positive. And she decided to, um, to have a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy and be quite um, forward and proactive in that. And that's, I mean, it's a bold move. Um, but I think that it's, it's just proof that you have to do what's right for you. It's not right for, um, you know, for whatever the doctor decides. This is a decision that you make as, as your own person, but, you know, with consultation with your family, with, I mean, it's ultimately your body and that's your choice. Um, but there are so many extenuating factors. Um, and, you know, it's something that I'm always very mindful of when looking at these, these medical decisions. It's, this is life and death. This is not a joke. Right. And, you know, even, I, I, I will put this out there, even research shows that people who even get a double mastectomy, cancer can come back in the wall of the chest. Um, you know, so I was weighing my options. I mean, it was, this was the most emotional, horrific experience of all three of my cancer diagnoses um, this summer, I will say. I was under an emotional roller coaster the entire summer until I finally had the plan because the plan, it took almost a month for the plan to come into effect and for me to feel really good about, okay, this is where we're going. You talked about putting your instrument down and just not having it in you um, to play. Was music not an escape for you during that time? Did you still hold on to it in any way or did you just pivot to something totally different like coloring or because I know you're a prolific colorer? <laughs> you know, I didn't even do very much coloring um, during this. And especially now in my last half of the chemo, I'm on Taxol right now and that causes neuropathy. And uh, my my hands are are very, very tingly, very numb. And while I can play, it's it's not comfortable. And so I feel less guilty now. But, you know, when I when I had to cancel the recital, I didn't have to, but and everybody was so supportive. They're like, Diane, you're doing the right thing. Um, I also decided not to play in Lincoln Symphony. Um, and I think it was the best. I now I know it was the best decision 
because of how I felt and how I'm feeling through chemo. Um, but my outlet in music was teaching. At least I still did that. Not full time, you know, but I met with my grad students and I, I listened to my undergrads and, and, and did that. And so I felt that made me feel normal, but playing the clarinet just made me sad because of what I lost. Um, and it was kind of like during the pandemic, so many people were doing these creative things and they loved, you know, playing through, you know, certain, certain books that they wanted to play and just learn new stuff. I was not one of those people that did not give me joy. That's okay. Um, yeah. And I think that is okay. And I hope there are some other people out there listening who are like, oh, thank goodness. Somebody else is like me. Um, you know, and when I pick it back up, then I can find the joy, you know, um, but, and I look forward to, to the spring and I hope the neuropathy goes away completely. If at least just, you know, enough where it's not uncomfortable because I've got a lot of great things, you know, coming up in the spring that I look forward to. One of the incredible things that I find about, um, this third round that you've had is that you have, challenged your students, your graduate students, uh, doctoral students, all the way down through the undergrads to rise to the occasion, to take your studio and, and run with it um, and support you in the process. And I think that that is giving them a gift and an experience that, that they would wait years for to step into a role, to step up and take on that responsibility that's something that, you know, as you graduate with your uh, undergrad or your master's or your doctorate and you wait and you, you grow up through a role um, and take on a new responsibility or take on a new position, tenure, et cetera, you've given them what they've been training for for years, which is the opportunity to, to lead your studio in your place while you take this medical leave. And, you know, let's just be thankful. I just want to take a, a, a minute and just say how amazing it is to have the benefits that are associated with uh, an academic position, to have those medical, dental, et cetera, benefits, um, which so many people take for granted and so many others don't have the opportunity to be supported by. I think that that's, um, right. it's incredible. I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, I, I thank my lucky stars almost daily, you know, for, wow, I, I can't imagine what, and I know some people, they thrive and they, they have to work during cancer. You know, they have no choice like I did. Um, and uh, as much as I wanted to be a hero, I just, I put myself first and I'm so glad I did that. And yet I have my pulse on my studio, you know, and they know that they feel that, you know, even there, I was able to work with a few of my f new freshmen, during the summer, you know, before school started, but a couple of them I did not. And, and one of them recently, who I never have really worked with other than, you know, give her some comments on her videos, wrote me the sweetest email saying how much they all miss me and support me and how much she's learning from me. And I, I just bawled, you know, reading that email thinking, wow, I'm so glad that they feel that I'm still a part of the studio, even though I'm not there, you know, that what I'm doing is still helping them and being recognized and you know and I've got like you said you know my grad students have rallied forth I have a former 
doctoral student who uh, was hired to teach my undergrads for me. So it, it kind of came full circle for her. So that's been really cool too, to kind of mentor her, her through this. And, and, you know, she texts me and, you know, tell me about something that happened. I'm like, well, welcome to my world. You know, have you learned a good <laughs> lesson, you know, <laughs> about what this, this job is like, you know, so it's, it's been really eye-opening and a, a good experience, I think, for everybody as, as much as it can be, despite the circumstances. Talk to me about the, the setbacks that, that you faced in terms of, um, of, of emotional struggles through uh, your diagnoses. I mean, obviously, the, the third, as you've mentioned, it has been the most difficult. I'm sure there were some really dark times. How did you pull through it? What did you look to? I cry daily about something, either because I'm thankful or because it's, it's, you know, it's a little dark time. And then, you know, as I tell people, then I try to straighten my crown and, and, and go back to having a positive attitude, but I let the tears flow. And I think the tears will continue to flow for quite some time because I've been through a lot and, um, having, Cancer, no matter how many people you have supporting you, loving you, it is one of the loneliest times in your life because no one really knows how you feel. You're the one going through it. You're the one having to go through the battles. And you can't explain that to someone. You, you just can't, nor do you really want to. Um, so it's it's... I have felt incredibly lonely. Um, like I said, despite all these wonderful people, I've got a wonderful, wonderful supportive uh, private face group, Facebook group um, that I, I didn't do in 2015, but the friend suggested it. And it was the best thing that, sh that I ever heard. I'm so grateful for it, where, you know, I won't post everything on my normal social media, but I'll post it on that private group of some of the things that I'm going through. And um, it's just nice to be honest, but it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's an emotional roller coaster. Where did the decision come from to open up to social media? You've been incredibly prolific uh, in terms of posting and living your life, your diagnoses, your treatments, your struggles and your triumphs on social media. I, I find that uh, so courageous and so admirable. Well, it's a little risky, you know, so, um, but back in 2010, when colon cancer struck, that's when I initially started, I think. I wasn't quite as um, open about it, but when 2015 happened, I decided, you know, I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna share. Because I really, you know, if it just helped one person, uh, then it was worth it to me. I try not to, to complain too much, but I think sometimes people need to, to see the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of cancer. And, um, and so I wanted to share that. I mean, just recently, I, I put my bald head on on social media you know i and i only shared that with my private group you know back in september when the hair fell out and then i thought you know screw it i'm just gonna i'm gonna put it out there and um so people can see what cancer is 
you know, I have half of my eyelashes, um, you know, no hair, lots of other things that people can't see, but I just wanted to be honest. And um, because I, I know that, you know, because of my position in the ICA, that that people are maybe, uh, you know, looking at my profile or something. And I thought, well, if I can be on a platform where I can help somebody, I'm going to do it. So that's why I did it. And I cannot tell you how happy it makes me feel when uh, somebody tells me, I just scheduled my mammogram because of you today. You know, that that made it worthwhile for me. And I have a, a Facebook friend, had a friend, a clarinetist, who's not on Facebook, who recently got diagnosed with breast cancer. And she and I have been on iMessenger and phone called the last several weeks. Um, and um, I've helped her, you know, through my experience, even though it's not her experience. And, and that just, it just helps. It helps me feel better that there was a reason why I got cancer again. And if it's to help somebody else, okay, I can accept that. So let's talk about your top 10. I, I know before we started the interview, you mentioned that you had cultivated this list of things you wish you knew or things that you wanted to share with people who are facing a diagnosis or going through it or supporting somebody who is. So why don't you share those with us? Because I think there's a, there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah, this was, this was something I, I wrote a blog about in 2015, and it, and it remains true, you know, today. Uh, it was just the fact that, you know, when a loved one or a friend is diagnosed with cancer, you know, I was just amazed at how many people just didn't know what to say, you know, and either people wouldn't say anything, which was, you know, silence is quite deadly, quite frankly. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'm just going to give kind of a top 10 little piece of advice of some do's and don'ts for um, helping someone who has cancer. So um, my number one is, you know, if you have a friend, you know, who says, who has cancer, and she says, I don't really want to talk about this, I need to process things right now. That doesn't mean don't ever reach out to them again. <laughs> that doesn't mean stay away. Okay. Um, that just means they need a little bit of time to process things and then reach back out to your cancer stricken friend and say, hey, how are things going? Okay. Don't expect them to necessarily reach out to you. Just give them the time. My number two even if you think you have nothing to say that can help, being there for your friend or family member means the world to them. Say something, no matter how silly or insignificant it may seem to you. I'm here to tell you that saying something is better than nothing. Number three, and this was a big one for me, wait to give your friend or your loved one any kind of books related to fighting cancer or articles or anything, you know, let them talk with their doctors, know that they are already probably Googling their cancer, which quite frankly is a little bit dangerous. I'd, I'd caution against that as well. Um, you know, your, your friend doesn't need another scary book to read. One of my, one of my colleagues, uh, brought me this book and, and uh, like the day before my lumpectomy in 2015. And I read about half of it and I immediately threw it in my bed 
bedstand night table and put it under a blanket in the drawer. And I never looked at it again because it freaked me out um, about some of what I read. And fortunately, the, the surgery was nothing like that. So and this poor person had no idea. She thought she was doing the, you know, a really nice thing to me. But so be careful of, of giving books to people, um, unless you've read them, and you know that they're not scary. Number four, feel free to write an email, text, send letters or a card, but don't expect a response. It's a one day at a time, you know, for the breast cancer or the cancer patient. So some days are harder. It doesn't mean they don't appreciate it. Just don't necessarily expect a response. Um, number five, it's okay to share experiences, you know, like when I had breast cancer, blah, 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 or my friend had breast cancer and she blah, blah, blah. Um, or talking about medication, just, you know, allow your friend to have their own experience. Um, I think that's really, really, really important. If she wants to know more, she'll ask. Um, number six, even if you've had cancer before, it's not the same as your friends. Um, again, you don't know how your friend feels. We're all individuals and we have our own way of processing things. You can be a resource, you can be a pillar of strength, but realize that every cancer experience is unique. Number seven, try not to say, at least they caught it early, or at least you don't need chemo, things like that. You know, while that may be true, you don't get to say that. Um, your friend can say that all she wants, but you know, and, and in 2015, I was so grateful that I didn't have to say, you know, to do chemo, but I didn't want someone to tell me, oh, at least you don't have to do chemo because it made me think, oh, well, I guess I'm not going through a difficult experience. Yes, I was. So try not to say things like that um, because every minute is a fight for a cancer patient. Okay. And it's going to be the, a fight for the rest of their life after they are in remission. Number eight, try to resist saying you only have two more chemo or two more radiation treatments left. Rather than that, say, I'm so glad you're nearing the end of your treatments. The way you phrase that is really important. You know, um, again, you know, chemo's not fun. Radiation's not fun. Um, I get to do the combination of both of them this, this, this time. So again, just, just be careful how you say things. Number nine, while it's great to think that your friend or your loved one is going to be just fine, resist the urge to say that. Simply say that you'll be there to support them in any way they need during and after their treatment. Um, they'll need that support every single day. And knowing that means the world to them. And again, this is a fight not ju just during treatment, but something that they're gonna fight the rest of their life. And then finally, again, silence is brutal. Get over how you feel about somebody having cancer and just imagine how your friend or your loved one feels. And again, saying something's better than nothing. That's my top 10. It's not about you or it's not about- It's not about you. <laughs> I always keep reminding people, you know, when they bring up a, a subject, but it's not about you, it's about this person or XYZ, etc. I am I'm grateful to you for sharing that uh, advice. I think it's something that everybody needs to learn. I certainly learned a few things that I probably should not have said in the past that I need to reconsider. Wrapping up the interview, do you have any questions for me? Is there anything you're wondering 
about me. Oh, wow. Even though it is not about me. I want to be very clear. <laughs> what have you been doing during the pandemic? That's a great question. So previous to the pandemic, uh, as vice president of Bakun, I used to travel a lot, as, as many people who follow me on, on social media or formerly followed me on social media. I don't post as much anymore uh, for very good reasons. I stopped traveling. Um, you know, previously it was 200,000 miles a year in the air, and that all came to a halt. I started spending a lot more time with my family, uh, with my kids. I have been um, coaching several of their teams, whether it's ringette um, or hockey. I'm now on the ice almost uh, six to nine times a week, uh, coaching and spending time with the kids, being more present. Uh, and also being more connected with the artists and the, and our dealers around the world for Bakun. Even though I'm not on the plane, even though I'm not um, in a foreign land, I am more connected than ever. I have Zoom teams, I'm engaging with people, um, and I'm loving it. Uh, I don't have the the afterburn or the, or the jet lag that I used to suffer with. Um, and you know, I would always be running from one thing to the other and I'm just trying to slow down a little bit more, uh, and appreciate, appreciate the kids, appreciate, um, my family, appreciate my friends, um, and just take a different look at what I want out of life. Um, now that I'm, you know, I'm 43, but now that I am, sort of in, in midlife, let's call it, um, I'm looking at, at my kids and saying, what can I do to, to help you? What can I do to, to, to help you achieve your goals? I mean, they're young, but just spending that time with them is, is wonderful. So that's what I've been doing and doing a lot of product development. I've been pivoting a lot in terms of, uh, in terms of the company. Previously, it was just all sales and marketing. And now um, I'm doing a lot of product development. We have a lot of really cool things in the hopper. I'm not going to get into it because that's not what this interview is about. But I'm flexing that side of, of my brain. Um, and, I, and I love it. I wake up every day and I love what I do. So there's a lot to be grateful for. I think it's great. To, you know, we've all suffered from the pandemic. But I think we've also all learned what our priorities could can be and should be you know and how life could maybe be better absolutely even post pandemic hopefully we'll all kind of adjust and some of these things that we've learned i think that's great If you're listening today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other free platform, the episode would normally end here, and then there'd be an extended lightning round question session at the end. Um, I'm pleased to say, though, that Joel Jaffe, with the support of Bakun Musical Services, has decided to sponsor the extended section of the podcast for all listeners for the episodes that he is uh, guest hosting here. So thank you so much to Bakun for doing that. And um, I want to invite you, if you are enjoying this type of episode, though, and you want to join the conversation, which is now possible at clarinet.com. I've uh, actually integrated the extended version of the show into the website, which I'm super excited about. You can log in, post comments, and talk about the show in there and listen to the extended ad-free version. Um, but you can do this at clarineat.com join, and you can get a free 30-day trial of that with code TRY. Gold. That's T-R-Y-G-O-L-D. And gold means the gold edition of the podcast, which is what I call the extended version with the uh, ad-free 
uh, benefit as well. So you can check that out at clarinet.com join. Thank you so much to Joel Jaffe and Bakun for sponsoring this, though, for all listeners to enjoy. I just want to add a little note here at the end. I like to include listener feedback and questions at this point in the episode. So if you do have any questions, you can contact me directly at hello at clarinet.com. Um, I did get this one note from a, a listener named Keith who says that he was listening to the episode we had about Legere reeds. And uh, we were talking about how these reeds were recyclable, and he really thought that was interesting, um, as did I and many other listeners. However, he did mention that you might want to check with your local recycling facility because it depends if your recycling vendor can actually accept this type of plastic. So um, I'm not sure if that's something we discussed on the episode. Um, I think that my local recycling facility does take Legere reeds, but now this makes me want to look into it. So um, anyway, before you recycle your Legere reeds, you might just want to, uh, you know, check that out and see if your local facility will allow it. So thank you so much, Keith, for sending in that comment and feedback. And again, if you have any comments or feedback or questions or anything else, guest suggestions for me, you can send me a message at hello at clarinet.com. Thank you so much again for Joel Jaffe's hosting of today's Clarinet podcast episode. And now let's carry on with the lightning round after a couple short messages from our sponsors. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. So, question number one. If you could have dinner with anyone, living or deceased, who would it be? I think at this point I'd like to actually have dinner with my parents right now. They're both, they're both gone, and I would just love to talk with them right now. As a colorist, somebody who loves to color, and I've seen many, many of your posts um, and, and your drawings and, and, and colored work, I want to know, are you an outline first and fill in later, or do you just go for it? I go for it. Pencil, crayon, or pen? Markers, actually. What's your non-classical desert island recording? You know, I'm going to say right now Lady Gaga. Wow. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Absolutely. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. I mean, she is so multifaceted and talented. Oh my gosh, yeah, she's super talented. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am so looking forward to the, the new Gucci movie that's coming out. Yes! That yes. Uh, my wife told me last night that apparently that really messed with Gaga a lot after she was so into the role um, as a character actor that, that there has been some fallout or remnants of that. So I'm really looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Everyone has a guilty pleasure. What's yours? <laughs> I think my guilty pleasure is staying at home. I just, I, I'm an introvert and I love being in my home. I know, I know Denise would say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
You are the most extroverted introvert I've ever met. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, or I'm happy to tell you. All right. What's one thing you've taken for granted? Just the time. Time we have. The time we have. I'm just going to leave it open like that. What's your go-to scale or study? I gravitate towards Opperman books. Like if I'm just getting back on the instrument after a little bit of a break, I, liked, I like his intermediate studies, not the velocity studies, although I like the velocity studies too. Um, but anything technique related. I mean, I, I'd love to say Behrman scales, but that wouldn't be honest. Um, I, I would graduate, I would, I, I would go to the Opperman. Of course, I always do scales, but I would go more towards those technique studies. And I love Kristen Denny Chambers' new books, too. I was just talking with somebody about them a couple days ago. Uh, the ones that are the precursor to the Close, that's her newest book. Um, I've been working my way through those, you know, getting back on the horn, you know, with the, the neuropathy that I have. So, awesome. and they've, they've been a lot of fun. Yeah. If the pandemic taught you anything, what is it? There's always a way to connect with people. Amen. What's on your nightstand? Oh, there's a bunch of stuff on my nightstand. Um, right now, there's a bunch of water bottles. Um, my last round of steroid pills that I have to take for anti-nausea before my last chemo round. Um, <laughs> and um, a book that someone gave me. Uh, I don't remember the title, but it's basically little stories um, uh, for people going through cancer. And what else is on my nightstand? Um, my iPad. What would you say to someone who was just diagnosed with cancer? Stay strong. Keep the faith. Diane, thank you for having the courage to discuss your trials and triumphs with cancer, as well as your career as a clarinetist. Finally, thanks to you, our valued listeners, for subscribing to the Clarinet Podcast and supporting Sean's work. It's truly a labor of love. Signing off from Vancouver, Canada, I'm Joel Jaffe, guest host of the Clarinet Podcast. This was Cancer and the Clarinetist with Diane Barger. Diane, thank you again. Thank you.